Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone. Sarah here. Happy Friday. Hope everybody had a great week. When you listen to this, Megan and I will actually be hanging out together in person. We're so excited. So I am recording this ahead of time so that I can enjoy our time together. If you listened to last Friday's Voices episode, you heard me talk to Kelly Hiltz, who's a kindergarten teacher from Massachusetts. And we've already heard from a lot of you who said you really needed that episode. But we also know that many of you have kids who are now well beyond kindergarten and whose educational path COVID affected really differently than it did the younger elementary schoolers. So this bonus episode came about with some lucky timing. A longtime listener named Xiaoyun Chu reached out to Megan and me with an episode suggestion about what learning has been like at the college level this past year and what she's observed about college students learning as they prepare to come back to campus in the fall. So I thought this would make a really cool compliment to our kindergarten themed episode from last Friday, almost to look at the pandemic implications on learning this year from two totally opposite ends of the spectrum. And here is another reason I was excited. I actually love having our listeners as guests on the podcast. So a little behind the scenes here, Megan and I get probably five to 10 email pitches a day from various experts or their representatives who want to be guests on our podcast. So if you're doing the math, that is literally thousands of emails, three, 4,000 emails over the course of a year. And we only do 12 interviews a year. And the more I interview guests, the more I realize how my favorite conversations are with women who I know, know you all really well, the ones who understand our community because they are a part of it. And both last week's interview with Kelly Hiltz and today's with Dr. Chu are those kinds of conversations where I'm talking to listeners of this podcast who happen to have subject matter expertise in something I think you all will find really helpful. So in the coming months, Megan and I have a few different ideas for expanding our contributor team here at the Mom Hour. We're still in talks right now, but it might look like an opportunity to bring additional voices onto the podcast from the community or to build out a team of blogging contributors on our site. 
If you are interested in either of those things or in another way of contributing to the show, just keep your eyes on our social channels and our email newsletters, and that's where we'll be sharing more soon. And if you have a specific area of expertise and want to pitch yourself as a guest on the show like Xiaoyun did, just send us an email. It's hello at themomhour.com. We definitely cannot promise it'll work out as easily as it did this time, but we'd still love to hear your idea. Okay, Dr. Xiaoyun Chu is an associate professor in the design department and the graduate coordinator at San Francisco State University. She is also mom to a preschooler and an elementary school kiddo and a longtime listener of this show. In our conversation, you'll hear her thoughts on how virtual learning and virtual teaching created some real positives in higher education this year, and even what she hopes will continue after the pandemic is behind us. Of course, there were definitely some struggles for college kids as well, and we will touch on that, as well as what she wants parents of high school students looking ahead to college to understand. Even if college is many years away for your kids, I think you'll get a ton of perspective from listening to Dr. Chu. Her thoughts on empathy and transparency in education had me thinking on those topics long after we stopped the recording. All right. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Megan and I will be hanging out in real life all weekend, and then we'll be back in your ears on Tuesday with another all new episode. We'll talk to you then. Hi, Dr. Chu. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is exciting. I'm very excited. So let's just start out by talking a little bit about what you do for a living. And you're in a university setting and you're a professor. Um, So I would love to hear a little bit more about Maybe talk about kind of your day job, but also how things have looked differently for you over the course of the last 14 months of this pandemic. Sure. Uh, My name is Xiaoyun Chu. I'm an associate professor of design at San Francisco State University in San Francisco, California. We're part of a larger Cal State University system that has campuses around the state of California. I'm simultaneously a mom, so I have two kids uh, in preschool and in second grade. So this entire year, I've experienced both the teaching and learning side. Uh, Around May 15th of 2020, we all got the message that the campus was going to be shut down effective immediately. And as professors, we had approximately a week to prepare to offer the rest of all of that semester fully online. Uh, The Cal States decided that for everybody's safety and well-being, the most prudent move was to move everything to 100% online. I'm just jumping in real quick. I think you said May 15th, but I'm thinking back, you meant March 15th, right, of last year? Yes, that's correct. Around yeah, yeah. March 15th. Yeah, no. <laughs> I'm getting my dates mixed up. I know, of- and now it's been longer than a year, so all good. But um, were you teaching large, like large lecture style classes at that time or small seminars or a combination? My classes in the spring semester were about 25 students apiece. Um, but it was really like being thrown into the water. I think we all knew that something was going on, but it all happened very, very quickly, as many other things shut down simultaneously as well. So, for example, our public school systems were also making a lot of changes around the same time. So it was a huge amount of change in a very short period of time. Yeah. Wow. Um, How many classes do you are you typically teaching at once? And you said um, class sizes of about 25 students. Are they mostly undergraduates? And then here's a really silly question. Um, When you say a professor of design, I mean, what what are we designing? What are the students in? What's their major? What are they learning from you? Oh, yeah. Well, my specialty is industrial design, and I also teach design history courses. So depending on whether I teach undergraduate or graduate courses, I could have a course that would be as small as 12 to 15 students, like a graduate seminar. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. or as large as 75 students if I'm doing an undergraduate survey course, for example, in the history of design. So it really uh, runs the gamut. I've done a little bit of everything in my job. Uh, So that also creates another problem because in industrial design classes, there's a lot of hands-on learning. And so that's been a real challenge during the pandemic period. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to talk about what, what you observed from the student perspective about how your college students were learning. Um, let's, let's skip over the initial, like last spring where everything was just so chaotic, but as you settled in, did you notice differences or maybe even some pros and cons about, um, how college students were adjusting to online learning? Yeah. Um, I, I think there definitely have been some pros. I mean, let's, I mean, let's not mince words. The pandemic has been a very difficult year and a lot of adjustments were necessary. But I kind of feel like now that we've gone through all this and things are starting to open back up again, I think it's very important to get some perspective on what has also been gained. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, instead of thinking of all the hardships, and there have been very many, can we also kind of try to make sense of this past year? I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge this kind of a minor miracle that we were able to keep going to school at all. Yeah. Um, you know, if this had happened 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, I don't even know that we would have had the technological capacity to offer all of this coursework fully online, mm-hmm. um, you know, with the video uh, conferencing platforms that people are using uh, with the add ons, you know, different ways of uploading your homework, different types of homework. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's quite extraordinary that we were able to save as much learning and turn around to a fully online uh, learning environment as quickly as we were. So I think that's definitely a plus. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the benefits of online learning has always been accessibility. So mm-hmm. it's more accessible to people, not only that live far away from the campus, but also, for example, people with physical disabilities that might impact their ability to attend in-person classes. Mm-hmm. It might make it more accessible for people who have things that they have to do at home, care for a family member, or maybe even a challenging work schedule. And they may need that job to be able to support uh, their college education as well. So the accessibility is also going to open up more avenues in the future, I think, even for students that don't live in that town, to at least do some of their coursework, you know, whether over the school year or over the summer online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. What else? I noticed that students have been more reflective about their work. So although the quality of their work, you know, may be on par, maybe even if they're under pressure, maybe not quite as good as what we would hope for, I think the reflective nature of their work and even the empathetic quality of their work has actually been higher than normal. I think people, yeah, I think the pandemic, for better or worse, have given people time Uh, to think about things, what's important, what are their values, what are they doing with their time, and what is meaningful. And I see that reflected in really thoughtful um, student assignments where, you know, they're not only seeing things from their own point of view, but trying to also incorporate a greater contextual understanding or even incorporating how another person might feel. That's so, that's so interesting. I'm going to jump in because I want to, I want to think about that with you here a little bit. Um, you're, I, most of your students, I'm guessing, are like 18, 19, 20 years old if they're undergraduate somewhere in there. And I have just I've heard throughout the last year and a half at just the um, the really high level of engagement of young adults in social justice issues and in caring for their, you know, multi-generational families and 
I'm wondering if, if you saw that as well in these young adults who might, might normally, or maybe stereotypically be, um, thinking about themselves and their parties and their friends. And, um, if somehow this tapped into, like you said, kind of a, a more meaningful self-reflection in these young adults. And I know you can't speak for all young adults everywhere, but do you, do you see a tie in there? Absolutely. Uh, San Francisco State has a lot of transfer students, so I believe the average age of our students is around 25 or 26. Okay. But, but definitely we still have 18-year-olds, and, and definitely we have students older than 26. I think the pandemic year has been a watershed for empathy, just mm. basic human empathy. Um, and not only from students towards students, but also students towards their teachers and back again. Wow. You know, when I'm teaching online, you know, I I am occupying the same role. I'm still the teacher. I'm still leading the class. And yet the students can also see that, you know, I, I have a life. I have little people that I'm responsible for. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I'll be teaching my class and my five-year-old is zooming around in the background or bugging me for a snack. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that's healthy. I think it's healthy to be humanized during this time. Yeah. And likewise, I've had students that have reached out to me because the pandemic has created very difficult situations for them that directly impact their learning. Uh, they may be primary caregivers for a family member. They may have had a family member who got sick and, yeah. you know, they were primarily responsible. Their income was really responsible for the family in some cases. Um, you know, other students that because of the high cost of living and loss of, of employment, had to move back in with their parents. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's a, a big uh, yeah. change, an unexpected change. And so the empathy has really had to flow both ways. Uh, I think just patience and empathy. Um, I think we've all learned this year not to make a lot of assumptions about people. It's hard to know what people are going through and you have to have a little bit more patience around the situation. And um, then likewise, people have also had to be just a little bit more vulnerable. You know, I'm sorry, I can't do that. You know, I'm taking yeah. care of two kids at home yeah. or or for the case of a student, you know, professor, I actually I actually can't get my homework in this week because I have to take my mom to the clinic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, almost like not putting up, um, not not faking it. Like there's no more there's no more faking that you have it all together. Um, and I think that's been a theme that we've seen come up in a bunch of different ways. So, yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, and I, I don't think we want to necessarily run around all the time spilling our guts about how difficult <laughs> things are. But I also think it's very healthy, um, you know, especially when when these situations build up and they do become really challenging to be able to say, hey, you know what, it, this is rough for me. And then to receive the empathy and the understanding of other peoples, I think that just makes it that much easier to get through that period, to feel like you're not being judged, you know, you're not you're not alone. Um, people can't solve the problem for you, but they do have empathy for yeah. you and they do wish you the best and they will support you in the ways that they can. I think that's been a good thing. All right. That's, that's really encouraging to hear. Um, how about some of the, the hard parts of going fully online? And, and I should say that before we started recording, you mentioned that you had experienced teaching online before the pandemic. And in fact, we're one of the first in your department to teach an online course. But then you saw the transition from, okay, online is one option or a tool to now it's our only option. And were there some hard parts about that for you and the students? Definitely. Um, I think 
one of the things that my colleagues and I realized pretty quickly was that, um, you know, we didn't think about it too much before, but teaching is a very physical art. Mm. You know, we're walking around the classroom, we're working the room, using hand gestures, uh, pointing things out, uh, changing the level of our voice to emphasize different things. Uh, If we notice a student is sort of not paying attention, we might move our bodies over to that side of the room just to kind of draw their attention back into the room. So we're working the room the whole time. And uh, there's a kind of a good exhaustion that comes from teaching one class or two classes in one day. At the end of the day, you're really tired, but you're simultaneously energized because you've also shared that energy throughout the classroom with your students, their heads nodding at you. Uh, You know, you see the... uh, the gears turning in their minds as they're picking up on a concept and reflecting on it. So really that physicality of teaching and learning, I think has really been lacking. And I believe that the students feel that too, right? Uh, When you're in the same environment, you're inhabiting that space with other students, you know, you're uh, the, the atmosphere is one of learning and, you know, focusing on the teacher, asking questions, raising your hand, interacting with your classmates. Um, It's a bit lonely. I think, sitting yeah. behind your screen for two to three hours at a time. Uh, and I know and- I'm just going to jump in because we have, you know, so many of our listeners have young kids and we all saw that so clearly both in the the good and the bad, which is there's no like peer validation for, for behavior norms, right? We talked like months ago about, you know, squirmy kindergartners and squirmy first and second graders. And there's, there's just that little bit of peer peer pressure or peer validation where you see your the person next to you sitting up straight and listening or you see them wiggling and you look over and then they're aware that someone's looking at them and like all of that is lost. So um, I think that carries through, like you said, it's a physical presence in the room. It's an energy presence. And it's also um, without thinking about it, kind of looking around and seeing what is the culture and expectations in this classroom. And I think that applies from seriously from preschool all the way on up. Absolutely. And when somebody's sitting behind their laptop, me as a professor, I'm competing with a whole lot of uh, (laughs) fun things. You know, a person could be shopping online, they could be checking their social medias, organizing their photos, posting things, or they could be working on their homework for another class. And so we just don't have that. We can't reach into the computer screen and, and, you know, and shake a student and be like, hey, you know, your, your attention should be here. We can encourage it. Um, but we also can't, you know, force that. And so yeah. it becomes difficult to, uh, to compete, to get a person's full attention for that amount of time. And again, who knows what they're doing on the other side. And I don't want to suggest that students are only shopping online or something like that. You know, they may also be, who knows, organizing medical appointments or doing more critical things at home that need to be done. But sure. again, it's hard to compete for attention. I would also say, in addition to the kind of general standard of I'm in school and therefore I'm doing school stuff, there's also just the nice camaraderie about having people around. Maybe Mm -hmm. you just, oh my gosh, that homework assignment was so tough. Oh yeah, me too. Like I worked on it for two hours or like, hey, what was the, what was the homework due next week? Just these little side conversations or these little chit chats are like, oh my God, that's a cool backpack. Where did you get it? Yeah. Uh, Those are healthy things, you know, and, and that camaraderie Um, your relationships with your classmate make it that much more fun to go to class. Uh, And, you know, we, we, I think that just beginning camaraderie that can later lead to friendship or, or to, um, to trust uh, is also missing. Yeah. I think that's such a wise 
point, as you're talking, I'm thinking about our listeners with um, young teenagers and high school students. And I think there are a lot of parallels. Obviously, your your students are mostly adults and they're young adults. Um, but I think anyone who has teenagers who spent most of this year learning online, it's that same like passing in the hallway, the passing periods and then coming in and out of the physical doors of the classroom. Um, I mean, I think we know so much was lost there. Um, I'm hoping to talk now about what you've observed as um, in-person learning has resumed at at your university and, um, you know, all over the country, this is happening. So you mentioned in an email to me that students are going to have to relearn how to learn or relearn their learning strategy. So tell me what you mean by that. And I'd love if you can broaden this here to um, even our younger students as well. I, I know you, you have very young kids and you teach young adults, but I would imagine there's there's a relearning how to learn across the board here. Yes, I think so. Um, I was fortunate to be vaccinated pretty early on. Uh, teachers, including college teachers, were prioritized in California for the vaccinations. And, you know, I found myself that I had to relearn how to do things. Um, Mm -hmm. It had become Mm -hmm. second nature that uh, there's a lot of danger around, you know, going to the supermarket is a risk. And Mm -hmm. and that risk, you could be risking your own health and that of those that you love. And we've been carrying around that, uh, you know, we, we made peace with it. We did what we needed to do. We wore our masks, we sanitized our hands. But, you know, I almost felt uncomfortable the first time that I went out with people masked outside. You know, I was like, are we are we breaking the law here or something? Yeah. You know, I felt yeah. very, very awkward. Um, and even those social graces and interactions, I was pretty, you know, out of practice. You know, I I I blurted some things out where I was just like, why did I say that? I've really been <laughs> like kind of living under a rock recently. Yeah, and totally. so I think we had uh, I had to kind of relearn um, that I was safe in that space, that, you know, this was good and healthy for me because, you know, for the past year, it, it had all been dangerous and unhealthy. Um, we haven't returned to in-person learning at SF State yet, although we will in the fall. Interestingly okay. enough, we just got a note from our president this morning, and she said that our students have actually been, and these were her exact words, imploring us for mm. more in-person instruction. So I think that the students are realizing that there's been some loss of learning and loss yeah. of motivation around yeah. learning. I think everybody understands why we took these measures, why we went to online learning. And I think everybody is grateful that, you know, that we were able to reduce the spread of the disease through these changes. But right now, as students contemplate uh, things being much safer and the ability to return, they actually want more in-person classes uh, because I think they're looking forward to uh, things getting back to normal, to seeing their friends. Yeah. Um, some some coursework really does not lend itself well to online instruction, and design would be a prime example of that. Um, yeah. Other things, for example, our nursing students have had a difficult time. You really need to practice some of these basic things of nursing, you know? I could jump in there. My brother is, uh, he's in his late 30s, so this is a second career for him, but he's been in nursing school, a 24-month program for the last 24 months. He is now done. So the pandemic hit about halfway through, and in that second year is when he would have been completely hands-on out in the world, you know, shadowing nurses and seeing patients and 
um, it's been really incredibly difficult. And he actually feels very unprepared to be a nurse. And he's been reassured that, you know, hospitals understand this and that they are still hiring and they will train you. And but he just feels like I did not get what I needed. And so that's been, I mean, right up front in my in my personal uh, immediate family. And and again, that goes to that physical learning aspect, which I think I think is sometimes underplayed. You know, the ability to, you know, of course, the theoretical learning and the book learning, but t- trying that together with the hands-on learning, I think, yeah. really cements it in your brain for the long term. I think you have a background in dance, so mm-hmm. I think you should appreciate that we can learn with our bodies, that we do learn with our yeah. bodies, um, and and those memories are are you know be almost incorporated into yeah. us. Uh, and so I think I think people are are realizing that the information will stick better if we're in those physical environments with those hands on uh, experiences when possible. Yeah. So what I'm almost hearing you say is that w- w- the good parts that we experienced, um, the accessibility and um, the affordability and the ability to scale learning um, for different communities and different people who might not have had access um, and then just our like how quickly our technology has evolved and all of that is so good. And that empathy factor, if we can keep all of that, but bring back the the parts that we've been missing, the physical learning and the camaraderie. Um, so I'm so curious if you have thoughts on on how schools and universities are going to approach that. Is your university going to then offer to like, I mean, offer some courses online, some courses in person, are students going to be asked to choose or is it going to be like, well, in this department, this is in person. I know that's like a lot of questions to lob at you, but I'm so curious, like what does a post pandemic hybrid, and I'm using that in giant air quotes because we've all now, now hybrid has a new association with it, but what does that look like? Do you think going forward? Uh, I think that it's probably a bit like a pendulum swing. I think one thing we can be very confident about is that the quality of online teaching and learning has vastly improved. Yeah. By definition, right? I mean, we've had, you have no idea how many professors were very resistant to online learning. It can't be done. I don't want to do it. I've been (laughs) teaching this way for 20 years. I'm really good at it. Uh, We had no choice this year. We had to learn how to use these new tools. And as we use them, and the more and more we use them, the better we get at them. So I'm very confident today that the quality of my teaching in an online environment is much better than it was before the pandemic. So that's a good thing. I think that it's going to come back to a more of a happy medium. So for Mm -hmm. example, um, some professors may say, wow, you know what, I was able to show so many interesting digital examples and do new exercises online. You know, I'm going to keep this online format, like the Mm -hmm. students have really thrived in it. Whereas again, ones where there's a lot more hands-on learning or where the professor just feels, you know what, I'm more in my element in person that they will choose to do fully in person. But then again, there may be some, you know, where let's say maybe the lecture is in person, but maybe the discussion section will be online. So all of a sudden it's actually a lot easier for you to get to that once a week discussion section or to do your problem set with your group and you don't have to hop into your car and, you know, drive 45 minutes to do that. So I think those can be some really um, wonderful hybrid examples of that. Or like, let's say that a student maybe wants to do a semester abroad. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, but maybe they needed to do three units of general ed back home. You know, the online learning could open up a whole new possibility for them where they're able to take classes at an abroad university, 
but also fulfill some necessary requirements at their home university. So I actually think that it's going to open up a lot of flexibility in terms of scheduling and in terms of geography as well. Yes. So let's say a student wanted to go for, uh, you know, spend summer back home with their friends or family. Again, that could open up the possibility for them to do some online class during the summer and get the credits for it, but still have the benefit of spending some, you know, solid family or friend time during the summer. So I think, you know, maybe if we come closer instead of 100% online or 100% in person, you know, maybe students will pick and choose. I have had some students, which maybe for personality reasons or just practicality reasons, have actually really preferred the online learning. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's so much easier for me to get everything done. Or students that have told me, you know what, I'm kind of naturally introverted anyway, so it's actually fine for me to be uh, online. And so those students might preferentially seek out uh, fully online classes or, right. you know, maybe low contact classes where they were only coming in a few times a semester. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, it's not unlike the workforce, which we had already remote working was already becoming a thing before the pandemic, but in the same way that online learning was sort of a thing before the pandemic. And then it was everybody's thing. And then we get to kind of carve a new future in the workforce as well. And I think companies, big businesses, small businesses are all doing the same thing. It's like, okay, we all learned that we can work from home. Now, who, where does that going forward? Like, where does that really benefit employees and their companies? Where is it really essential to bring people together and how often, and what does that look like? So there's a little bit of a clean slate with, I mean, I like the really optimistic, you know, take you have there, which is we get to, we get to now use what we know to create really dynamic and flexible and engaging educational experiences. And I, I mean, that's, that's a really positive thing. I'm thinking, you know, I have five years before I'll have a freshman in college, but that feels like a good on-ramp to, to of figuring this out of, of what's next. So I love that. Yeah. And I think, for everybody, whether that's parents of kids or college students or people whose work has changed as a result of the pandemic, hopefully for you as for me, things are slowly, slowly marching their way back to, I mean, it won't ever be normal, normal again, but they're moving in the right direction. So think this could be a wonderful time to take stock. You know, yeah. what about online learning worked for me or for my child or what about online work was beneficial for me this past year? Yeah. And what didn't work so well? So while it's still fresh in your mind, uh, whether you're, again, a student or, or a person in the workforce or a parent, start jotting some of those things down. You yeah. know, these these were real positive things that we learned how to do this year. And, and in some cases, maybe even better than the alternative. Yeah. These were things where, you know what, it fell flat. Uh, I got bored pretty quickly. I wasn't able to focus. And then as you start putting those bricks back into place and, and rebuilding your new normal, uh, then you'll be able to accommodate for that and say, wow, this worked really great. Let's keep doing that. That, you know, this didn't work out so well, you know, let's try and, and substitute a better um, method for that or a better uh, system for that. So, yeah. you know, this could be a, an opportune time to, um, to reflect, you know, to, to kind of um, take stock of, of yeah. how this past year has gone. I, I really love that. Um, I wanted to ask about incoming high, incoming college students and students who maybe have been, were in high school, you know, this this school year that we're still in right now, maybe they're entering college in the fall um, or even who have a, a, another year or two. Are you I, I understand you're not a freshman advisor and you're not you don't work in admissions, but 
Um, do you have thoughts on the newest of the college students coming up? Are they going to, do you anticipate some struggles getting used to college life, having maybe missed out on a traditional high school four-year path? Um, do you think professors and advisors will accommodate that? And sort of are there plans to kind of, I don't know, nurture these these incoming freshmen in a way that uh, un- is empathetic, like we've been talking about empathy, that that empathizes with their dis- the disruption that they've gone through academically? Well, definitely colleges are changing their admission standards. Um, the standardized tests are optional in many universities right now for the admissions process. Uh, I think some of those aspects of empathy will stick, definitely. Uh, you know, for example, if, if we look at a student's transcript and they had a year that was, you know, kind of iffy as a result of the pandemic, I don't <laughs> think that's going to be a surprise to us. Right. Uh, a lot of adjustments had to happen. A lot of change had to happen. I think on the plus side for a teenager or a young person, I do think that this year everybody has had to demonstrate resilience. And that includes uh, teenagers, right? They had to be resilient to um, understanding the impacts of a global pandemic. They had to be resilient to transitioning to online learning very quickly, to changing their ways of interacting with their friends. And so, you know, maybe because of that, uh, they'll also be able to maybe advocate for themselves a little bit more. You know, here's what happened. You know, this, this was certainly not my fault. There was a circumstance that I had to... Uh, adapt to. And I was able to adapt to that successfully. And here's what I learned from that. I think the fact that we all went through this together is is actually really beneficial. I think a lot of things, you know, will be, we will understand, we will have a natural empathy, because although our circumstances wasn't identical, we similarly had to go through a lot of change in a very short amount of time and make sense of things for ourselves. Yeah, no, that's, that's such good that's such good, solid perspective. I think even though we know that this was a global experience, <laughs> sometimes it's easy to get more myopic and be like, but, the, but my, but my story is. And so it's just a good reminder that everyone from the very first admissions person opening an application to the person giving some kind of a test or exam to like your freshman year roommate, like everybody went through it. So I think that's a really good, good reminder. I will say that my kids have returned to in-person learning. And one of the things that I was concerned about is that they would have started to associate school with some of the things that they were beginning to associate with online learning. So Mm. I was worried that school in my daughter's mind would represent sort of a little bit of boredom, a little bit of tedium, uh, being behind the screen, kind of doing the motions because you had to, but not actually being super excited about it. Mm -hmm. So I was very worried that she would begin to associate those feelings of boredom or tech overload with school itself. And I will say that my daughter bounced back immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, The return to school was a joyous event. I think the teachers and the principal all made an effort to welcome the kids back. You know, they were lined up outside of the school. They were giving, uh, you know, thumbs up to students. They had a bunch of balloons outside the school and they really made it a joyous return to campus. And I hope that for students as they return to school, whether they've been to college or not, they'll actually have a new appreciation for the the physical um, experience of being in a college, having the dorm 
having other people around. And so I hope that they associate a return to, let's say, quote unquote, normal with a lot of joy. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And uh, we recently, I did an interview with a kindergarten teacher who talked about welcoming her students back to the classroom. And um, I was asking her about shyness or behavioral issues that can come up in kindergarten, you know, everything, just the little things, the picking on each other and the shoving and the line and all that. And she said, there's less conflict in kindergarten than there's ever been. And this is five and six year olds she's talking about. Um, and parents had worried that that those issues would be exacerbated because kids hadn't had as much practice socializing and you lose nine months or 12 months of social emotional practice. And I can understand parents concern. And it was just so kind of delightful. And I almost giggled a little bit like they, they're so happy to be back that they're not even fighting yet. Like they're not even, you know, grabbing toys in the sandbox. I don't know how long that will last, but I agree. There is joy associated with it. And with really young kids, they might not even remember or know what they were missing with a high school student or a college student. They do remember the old times. Um, and so they do have that perspective to be really grateful for the return. So I love that perspective. Yeah. And my hope for students uh, in college as they return is that they won't forget some of these things, empathy, uh, reaching out to people, but even more so that they'll take better advantage of the physical infrastructure that a college represents. Mm, So, you know, those wonderful gyms, uh, the beautiful library spaces that are theirs for the taking. Um, Our campus is actually gorgeous. You know, I've been going there a lot because it's so empty and there's just a, a the physicality of the campus is gorgeous. The ability to study without too many distractions uh, in the school, uh, just the liveliness of the campus. Spring semester is always so fun. The sun starts yeah. to come out and people are kind of sunning themselves on the lawn. Yeah. So I, I hope they take full advantage of that, you know, when they come back to campus, yeah. as well as the support services that the universities offer in terms of mental health supports, career yeah. development, student clubs and stuff. And so I, I, I just hope that they milk that experience for all it's worth once the campus opens again. I hope so too. I'm thinking back to things like, you know, attending concerts or theater on campus or like events or speaking engagements. And I think a lot of that will be very slow to return, but hopefully the, the enthusiasm for it will be high when it does come back. So well, Xiaoyun, this was really great. Even just for me, I don't have college students yet, but Um, To get a little peek into the world of young adults uh, getting their education in a pandemic and into your world. Is there anything else as a mom of two young kids that we didn't get to talk about that you want to touch on today? I think no matter how old your kids are, no matter how young your kids are, we have all shown a great deal of resilience this past year. Uh, My kids are aware that they've lived through a pandemic. Uh, They are computer literate in a way that they never were before. And yet they also really appreciate real school, as my daughter calls it. Yeah. So I think that's a wonderful lesson to have learned. I think yeah. for college students, I think they're going to appreciate their college experience that much more. But hopefully the fact that we have these digital tools and online opportunities will you know, make it even easier for them to take classes or take advantage of other opportunities in their life. Yeah. And I do think that the importance of people has never been more obvious, right? The isolation that we felt, the loneliness over the course of the pandemic. And I really hope that people don't forget that as things begin to open up, you know, take advantage of that precious time to spend with your friends and family and, you know, create those friendships, uh, you know, and maybe let some of the other junk that was clogging up the works, let that stuff slide. 
Wise, wise words. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. I just really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, me too. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And again, if you'd like to pitch yourself as a potential guest for an episode of The Mom Hour, just email us. We're hello at themomhour.com. And we are going to be working hard to build out our contributor team of bloggers and potentially new voices on the podcast in the coming months. So keep an eye on our social channels and make sure you're subscribed to our email newsletter. We'll be back with you next week. Thanks, everyone. The Mom Hour is supported by partners like Erica. Erica is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug when they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. Erica was built by a dad of three boys who saw that teens themselves were really becoming self-aware to the risks of social media, and he wanted to help them self-regulate. Erica works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Sarah, I have been having just the best time making my new podcast, The Teas Made. I launched back in November and so far I've covered topics like staying warm on cold winter walks, nurturing creativity, how to be a great host, and even Nordic secrets to loving winter. Well, you know I am fan number one of The Teas Made. It's got such a cozy vibe, and it seems like you've really hit your stride in covering topics like wellness, self-care, comforting rituals and routines, and home and family life. Just look for The Teas Made with Megan Francis wherever you get your podcasts, or head to theteasmade.com to find all the episodes.